Huckabee is brought to you in part by Trivita.com, helping you experience greater wellness. Tonight on Huckabee, Betsy DeVos calls to reopen American schools. Robert Woodson exposes Marxist protest hijackers. And comedian Robert G. Lee joins us. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Uh, thank you very much. We are so glad to have an audience back here in our theater in Hendersonville, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. And we are thrilled that you have joined us as well. I hope you're staying safe. But do you ever get the idea that some of the people in our country just don't like it? I mean, even some elected officials who want to govern the country, like Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, openly say that we need to dismantle the very structures of America, including our economic system. I find that a bit strange coming from someone who escaped the absolute squalor of Somalia where the annual per capita income is $225. Where she came to America, here she lives large, and even somehow got elected to Congress. I wonder, is it her goal to make us like her home country? I sure hope not. I'm starting to think that some loud voices in our world want to get rid of America once and for all. And they have observed that it doesn't work to do it from the outside. I mean, an attack like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 only unifies the country and gives us the resolve to fight back. So let's suppose I wanted to destroy America. What would be the best way to do it? Well, I'd first replace the education system top to bottom. Instead of giving students the tools to think, reason, and analyze based on hard facts, I'd give them a system in which everyone thinks alike. Deviating from the groupthink would be strictly forbidden, and it would result in a person being ostracized, scorned, and prohibited from even being employed. I'd erase all substance and symbols of history. Instead of ensuring that students actually read and understood the documents of our origin, you know, like the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, I'd focus instead on pop culture, and I'd fill our history books with Lady Gaga, the Kardashians, and Beyonce. I'd demonize George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, and Benjamin Franklin by never allowing students to see what these men actually said or did. I'd find any flaw in them, and I'd make that the only thing kids learned. I'd never simply teach that the country had some ugly chapters of slavery and racism, as did virtually every nation on earth. No, I'd pretend those things still exist now, despite the obvious fact that a black person was twice elected president by defeating white candidates, which by the way meant that a large number of white people voted for the black candidate. And I'd ignore that black people have held virtually every cabinet agency or another, have served at the top of our military, have advanced to business, to become millionaires and billionaires, led the world in several scientific and medical innovations. 
Now, I'd seek to undo a system of economic capitalism which rewarded work and innovation. I wouldn't demand equality of opportunity. I would demand equality of outcome, which would mean that there wouldn't be an incentive to study all night for an A, since everybody's going to get the same grade anyway. Why risk starting a business based on a better idea or create something if working from early to late still netted you the same pay as the person who came late, left early, and never created anything? Hey, I just give everyone a trophy. No one would ever lose, ever. But I'd also get rid of law enforcement. I mean, cops can get in the way of us doing what we want, taking what belongs to others and having civil order. If there's anarchy and chaos and people are terrified to live and work where they live, it'll be a lot easier for me to convince people that the problem is not the lack of law enforcement, but the presence of law enforcement. Oh, I'd use words that sound good to cover my real intentions. I'd say equality when I really mean favoritism. I'd say tolerance when I really mean intolerance. I'd say diversity when I really mean uniformity. And I'd say women's health, when I really mean doing a very unnatural surgical procedure to kill her baby and ultimately do real damage to the woman's physical and mental health. I'd marginalize religion and brand all of its adherents as fanatics, bigots, hate mongers, and racists because belief in moral absolutes like love, forgiveness, charity, sacrifice, and service that's a real threat to controlling people and making them follow what they're told. Now, I'd never attack America with a bomb, bullets, or battleships. I'd just lie about our history. And I'd lie about its origins. I'd destroy every symbol of its legacy, both good and bad. I would indoctrinate instead of educate so as to have uniformity of thought. And I'd take away all ownership of private property and personal capital and give everyone the exact same thing. So I would be able to destroy the incentives that made people like me, who grew up poor, who worked really hard to live better, and with that, to be able to give better. But you see, I don't want to destroy America. I love America. And it's why I will not let her get destroyed without a fight. The coronavirus pandemic continues to upend every aspect of American life and families, especially those with school-aged children. They've been under tremendous strain as kids throughout the country have been out of their classrooms for months. Well, the big question, should schools reopen? The president says yes, but it has to be done safely, and schools must get creative about how to deliver learning. Earlier, I spoke with U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, who is at the forefront of the process. Madam Secretary, it's going to be a real challenge for a lot of schools to safely reopen and get those kids back in a classroom environment. What are some of the challenges and, and, and what do you think are the most important things that parents need to be concerned about when schools reopen to make sure they're safe? You know, the president's been very clear and uh, the, the uh, data shows that kids need to get back in school. Um, there are all kinds of ways to do it safely. And uh, of course, everyone is committed to doing that. 
Um, but the reality is there's other measures than just whether kids are going to get or pass the virus. Uh, there are other health measures to consider. Um, kids who've been home for months uh, not learning and not continuing to advance themselves. Uh, you know, there are mental health concerns. There are socio-emotional health concerns. And I think especially of kids who are um, in circumstances where being in school is the most important part of structure in their life and opportunity. Many of the countries in Europe have reopened and done so with, uh, without any kind of significant spike in cases. And so it's, it's really important that uh, education leaders get going with making sure their schools reopen this fall. One of the things I know you've stressed as Education Secretary is that one size doesn't fit all. Families should make decisions, individual localities ought to make decisions, even the way that schools reopen are not gonna be the same all across the country. Rural America may look very differently than urban America. Uh, so how does the Department of Education help support these local decisions at the school board level so that they can make flexible decisions based on uh, their unique communities and needs? Well, importantly, we've done everything we can within the statutes to ensure that states and local districts have the maximum amount of flexibility to be able to do what they need to do for their families and their students. And we're going to continue to do that. We're also continuing to provide all of the information that has been made available from both uh, U.S. sources around safely doing this, as well as international uh, perspectives and experiences with it. I think this last several months have demonstrated that education in general has to become a lot more nimble and flexible to, in order to address the realities of the circumstance of that time, as well as the needs of different children and, 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 uh, and their families. I want to touch upon a couple of very big Supreme Court decisions that have happened this week. One mm -hmm. that really advanced uh, the notion of, uh, uh, I, I would say, religious freedom and school choice, where the Supreme Court said that you cannot exclude a school just because it's a religious school from being able to receive scholarship money. That was a huge decision. And uh, then the other decision had to do with just the, the idea that a, a religious school has the power uh, to hire and fire who it wishes based on the beliefs, the doctrines, the practices of the people because it should be in keeping with uh, their, uh, their commitment to faith. These are big things. Speak to how they will help create a greater level of school choice and opportunity for kids. Sure. Well, the Espinoza decision is uh, very, very significant for um, the future of giving families and kids many more options and choices in their K-12 education. It has broad implications, and, uh, and the ruling yesterday on uh, the two religious freedom cases is another affirmation that uh, in institutions or organizations that are uh, faith-based, religious in nature, uh, need to have the same kind of freedoms that everybody else enjoys. And so uh, I, it was a tremendous reaffirmation of that and has, like I said, huge implications for state-based programs to expand 
uh, choices to families. And you know, at this time where families are looking for uh, the right answer for their kids going forward, I think it, it comes at a very important time. And states I know are looking afresh at what they can do to either augment and, uh, and add to programs that they already have or introduce more of these programs if they have not yet done so. Well, we are so very grateful, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, for your joining us today. Uh, wish you well. I know you've got a huge task ahead. We thank you for being a part of uh, our conversation today. Thank you so very much. Thanks so much, Mike. My thanks to Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. You can follow the secretary on social media at Betsy DeVos ED. Also, visit ed.gov for the latest on what the department is up to, as well as the latest school reopening guidelines. Well, it has been a sad week for music fans as we learned of the sudden, unexpected death of the legendary Charlie Daniels at the age of 83. Charlie's been a personal friend and a great friend of this show. He was just with us a few weeks ago, doing what he loved to do, raising support for our military heroes. Charlie's love of this country was as genuine as his love of his dear wife of 56 years, Miss Hazel. And his ability to wow a crowd with high energy performances right up until the day he died, incredible. Charlie was a devoted Christian gentleman his love for God was from the heart. His musical career that spanned almost 70 years blended gospel and country, blues, bluegrass, and rock and roll to create a sound and a genre of music that moved people of all ages, races, and backgrounds. He was a world-class musician, having earned his chops as a session musician before setting off on his own. But most of all, he was a classy individual. He treated all people with respect and with kindness. I loved his boldness for his views, which were unapologetically pro-American and supportive of working men and women. Charlie can't be replaced, but he will and should be remembered. And we will never forget this larger-than-life American original. Now, Rather than be sad, let's celebrate all that Charlie Daniels gave his audience, including his signature song. Take it away, Trey. better way to give tribute to Charlie than with a little bit of his own music. Well, as many cities are facing chaos and violence, my next guest says the radical left is doing all the wrong things to fix 
Systemic Problems in Low-Income Urban Communities. He's a longtime civil rights activist who says that the problems and the solutions come from within. Please welcome the founder of the Woodson Center, Bob Woodson. Bob, let's talk about what we hear a term, systemic racism. Is that what's wrong with America today, systemic racism? I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I, think, I think it's really being used as a ruse to so that we can avoid addressing the fundamental questions that if racism were the principal cause of the urban decay that exists in all the cities around the country, then why does this condition exist with black officials running these institutions? Hmm. And so that's, but I think as long as we can concentrate on uh, external factors like systemic racism, it, we can avoid asking the critical questions of why are blacks, low-income blacks failing in systems run by their own people, the, the school boards, the city councils, the jails, the hospitals, the foster care systems. So I think it's being used, Governor, uh, to deflect attention away from these very critical questions. I've heard you say, and I've read things that you've written about that the family structure, the breakdown of a traditional family, the lack of fathers in so many of young black males' lives is a huge factor. I've been on the Black Lives Matter website and one of their stated goals, and I challenge people to go to their website, read it for themselves, one of their stated goals is to get rid of the traditional family where a father is involved. That seems shocking to me that the very thing that you've just said is most important is the one thing that the Black Lives Matter movement would love to destroy, a mother, father raising children in a traditional family. Well, that's why the Black Lives Matter movement and is really not about trying to seek justice for blacks. They are using and abusing the rich legacy of the civil rights movement and taking America's birth defect of slavery and using it as a bludgeon to really destroy civil, civil institutions in America. It's really about attacking the nation's founding principles. And, and unfortunately, low-income blacks are collateral damage in that, in that effort a part of the left to really destabilize and change our way of life. Black-owned black crime in major cities, whether it's Chicago, which may be the worst, but New York City, Detroit, Atlanta, gets very little attention in the news media. Why is that, Bob? Because it does not fit the left's narrative to talk about uh, everything has to be examined through the uh, intersectional lens of race. And so it does not fit that narrative. For instance, there are about 14 blacks who are unarmed, who are shot by the police every year. For every one that are shot, 270 blacks kill one another. Uh, of, the, uh, of the homicides, more blacks have killed other blacks in one year than 50 years of the Klan. You know, I have noticed that a lot of the major corporations of our country are donating money to Black Lives Matter. And as a slogan, I think we all agree, yeah, of course Black Lives Matter. We're talking about the organization, which is not some innocent uh, group of uh, do-gooders. Uh, this is a Marxist organization that would love to see 
fundamental institutions of America overthrown. Um, you have just spoken to it. One of the institutions is that of the police department. We hear moves to defund the police. Virginia is now uh, working on legislation that would make it no more than a misdemeanor to attack a police officer. Speak to that. Is it dangerous for us to devalue law enforcement at a time when laws are being completely ignored? Every time police are attacked, for being racist in the community. It means they are less aggressive enforcing laws in those high crime neighborhoods. And the consequence has been the murder rights soar in the absence of police. And yet, and many of the people who are picketing to defund the police are themselves living in gated communities where they are safe. And so many of the advocates for defund the police do not have to suffer uh, the consequence of their advocacy. But when you ask grassroots people what they want, they want the police. Before I let you go, Bob, I've got to ask you about the 1776 Unites project that you are uh, working with. Tell me what your goals are, and if people want to help you with that, how do they do it? Well, the goals of 1776 is to to offer a counter-narrative to 1619. We're mm. not entering into gladiatorial debate. We're going to offer inspirational and aspirational stories about blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires. Mm. Uh, blacks in Chicago that uh, in 1929, at 731 businesses, 100 million in real estate assets. We want to tell stories of resilience and perseverance in the presence of, of oppression, we're going to develop in children's books. We want a curriculum that celebrates the, the glories of the American system and how some of those blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires actually purchased the plantation on which they were slaves. And one of them actually took in the family of the slave master, which evidenced the kind of radical grace that was practiced by people at that time. So there are a lot of fascinating stories about resilience and, and triumph in the face of oppression that America needs to be, children need to know. Well, I want to tell you something. You're one of my favorite people. You've certainly <laughs> reminded me why. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You can follow Mr. Woodson on Twitter at Bob Woodson and at Woodson Center. And check out all the positive work he's doing over at 1776united.com. Next, the comedy of Robert G. Lee in the Los Angeles Dream Center's Matthew Barnett. Later, singer Charles Billingsley's Battle with COVID. There's more Huckabee on the way. Osama bin Laden and the Zamed salute the Everly Brothers. Well, my next guest is Hollywood's top warm-up comic for sitcoms like Last Man Standing. But he's also one of the most in-demand clean comics in the world. Performing the entire Bible in six minutes. Don't you wish your pastor could do that? Would you welcome the very funny Robert G. Lee? Yeah. 
Well, we are back, Creation fans, with the beginning of the world in the World Series. In the first inning, Lord God Jehovah stepped up and hit Grand Slam after Grand Slam until the bottom of the fifth when he cracked one foul, then a fish, then a multitude of fish and foul. But it was good. <laughs> right here on this ark, we've got two of every single living animal from our lions, tigers, and dancing bears right down to our two favorite mice, Topo and Gigio. But first, here they are, the beetles. I have not had a decent meal since we left Sodom. This soup needs salt. Could you please pass your mother? <laughs> well, you can knock me down in a chariot race. I slander my gods all over the place. I do anything that you I want to do. But oh, oh, Moses, lay off of my Jews, don't you? Delilah says stupid is as stupid does. So I let her tie me up. Then all these Philistines run in. They go, Delilah, they trying to kill me. And she said, run, Samson, run. But she'd give me a haircut, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Little soldiers of Jerusalem, I ask you to send out the warrior to defend your puny country and your puny God, and you send me out a girly man armed with a slingshot. What can a girly man armed with a slingshot do to someone as large and powerful as... Ow. Job, I feel your pain. Now, if you will just curse God and die, I promise I will look after your wife. When they tossed Daniel into my den, I said, put him, I put him. I couldn't eat him. I was afraid to. Okay, here's what happened. We were out in our fields uh, protecting our flocks by night, which is what we do, when all of a sudden this angel of light appeared in the sky and told us that our Savior's been born in the city of David. And then this whole host of angels appear. So we run, and then we find this cute little couple in a manger with a baby, and we tell them everything we've seen. And they say, tell us something we don't know. And then we, we realize... This is the Christ child. And so we, we fall down on our knees and we're worshiping it and we go back and we're praising God every step of the way and that's when we found out your sheep are missing. We have no idea where they are. We're so sorry. Ha <laughs> ha <laughs> He touched my eyes and said, your sins are forgiven. And I could see. Whoa. And they asked me, who was that man? And I said, I can honestly say I've never seen him before in my life. Every time we get together, I cook and I clean, uh, but my, where's my sister Mary? Oh, she's sitting at the feet of our Lord, just worshiping him. But if I say anything, all I hear is Martha, Martha, Martha. <laughs> psst, psst, uh, look, I know he chose the 12 of us, so it must be right, but is it just me or does Judas give you the creeps? <laughs> this just in, Jesus of Nazareth crucified on Friday is risen from the dead. He was resting in peace until early this morning when a man of light rolled away the two-ton stone in front of his tomb. The squadron of guarding him found the burial clothes still be intact. The Sanhedrin are claiming it to be a hoax, but have yet to produce a body. And as of this comment, the disciples were not available for comment. <laughs> well, no, 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 here's what I'm saying. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm not going to believe he's alive unless I, unless I put my, 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 my hand in his side and my finger in his... Well, my Lord, my God, that's a hole, all right. 
Well, Ananias, looks like you've got to ask yourself a question. When you sold your property, did you give the disciples five shekels or six? I've got to warn you, the Holy Spirit's the most powerful weapon known to mankind. You lie to him, he's liable to blow your head clean off. So I've got to ask you, punk, do you feel lucky? Oh, so love is patient, love is kind. It does not insist on its own way. It hopes all things, believes all things, and duels all things. Well, you might even say, all you need is love. <laughs> say, Paul, that's not bad. I see streets of gold, red roses too, God's paradise for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Whoa, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Well, that, that's good. That's, I that's mean, good. you covered the whole of the Bible, 66 books in six minutes. <laughs> I, I, told the, I, wanted the, I wanted to stop and say, quit clapping. I don't have that much time. <laughs> Listen, for that, we'd give you all the time in the world. Thank you for being here. Oh, pleasure. Uh, you know, a lot of people, they hear, okay, you're the warm-up comic. You've done more of that than anybody in Hollywood. Uh, you're considered the king of comedian warm-up guys. But a lot of people may not understand what happens at the taping of a show that we see only the finished product. What, what happens? What is it that you do in that warm-up? Well, most people think, like tonight, I came yeah. out, and it was great. I got to talk to the audience for about five minutes. Yeah. That's a warm-up for a talk show. For a sitcom, I'm there for four to five hours. Whoa. And there, the laughter has to be the same at the end as it is at the beginning. So it's my job to know what the producers want, what kind of laughter they want, what that level is. And if they're laughing that way, I can let them go a little bit. Uh, but if I got to goose them, I got to goose them. I got to go, go in there and give them the energy. So it's been a great job. I've been able to stay at home. I didn't have to go on the road and stay with two comics I didn't know in a condo with yeah. some place. Uh, so, which I'm not in favor of that anyway. But uh, it's just, it's been, a, uh, it's been a godsend. And it's just been, and I've been able to watch some of the most talented people week after week after week and see them, the directors, producers, and actors. And it's, it's just been a, it's been a great ride. Now this is going to put you on the spot, but you've been there before. Who did you enjoy working with in terms of their show who was the kindest, just most down to earth that you said, boy, that guy was great? Will, Other than me, of course. <laughs> okay, number two and three. Okay, uh, uh, it's, it's so easy. I will say Ted Danson hmm. and Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Really? Now, yeah. they're big enough stars that they appreciate what they have. Because yeah. the rule in Hollywood is you become what you always were. So people hide who they are until they become successful. And once they make it, they don't have to hide it anymore. And the really good people like Ted and Julia they're just warm and wonderful, and they, they, they appreciate the job they have. They, they hug everybody. They give gifts. I just, I haven't had a better, I've had great shows. Yeah. But as far as individual stars, they didn't have to be nice to me, but they were, and they were just great people. Well, I'm going to tell you, we are thrilled to have you here. You, you. have been a hilarious addition. And in the middle of COVID, we need a little bit more We do, that's out. right. Thank you. Robert G. Thank Lee, you. thank you very, very much for being with us. I really want this guy back. And uh, maybe you might even be able to persuade him to come to your community and do something for you. I don't know. That's up to you. But I know this. Keith Bilbrey is still laughing over there. But when he regains his composure, 
He's going to tell the viewers exactly where they can laugh more with Robert G. Lee. All right, get it together here. For more stand-up comedy or to book him for your event and to order his DVDs, including his latest, Can I Get a Witness Protection? Just visit robertglee.com. Coming up, the Dream Center's Matthew Barnett, plus singer Charles Billingsley and true-life coronavirus nightmare. It's next on Huckabee. Samaritan's Purse is doing wonderful work with our veterans. Did you know that over half of married veterans who have served since 2000 have trouble re-entering society? Well, right now, you can help them heal emotionally. You can help them restore their marriages and give them hope through Jesus Christ. All it takes is a phone call or a website visit to Samaritan's Purse and sharing a single gift to help heal these patriots. There's no better investment than you can make for those who invested their very lives to protect you and your freedoms. Well, the Dream Center in Los Angeles began as a local church with just 39 members and a dream. Today, it provides food, shelter, spiritual guidance, and other services, listen to this, to over 40,000 people every single week. And it has a worldwide impact. Take a look. My mother and father fought a lot. That's the first memories I had. I came from a real broken home. There was a lot of domestic violence. I got sexually molested at a young age. The divorce caused my parents to use me against each other. As time went on, I used uh, drugs to escape reality. In my early 20s, um, I got pregnant with a little girl. Um, by the time she was five, I ended up getting her taken. Um, there was a lot of hurt and a lot of pain in my heart because I couldn't seem to shake this drug addiction. I went to six different rehabs, um, all in seven months. Every single time, always end up right back in my mess. My pastor uh, told me about the LA Dream Center. There's so many words that I could use to describe this amazing place, but I think the one that pops out in my mind is hopeful. You know, we are hopeful for people's lives here. We believe in second chances. I found the ability to forgive my mother. I found the ability to forgive my father. And I was finally able to have that chance in life to where I could overcome those issues and those, those roots of bitterness and resentment that I wasn't able to let go of. Please welcome the founder of the Dream Center and the best-selling author of this book, The Church That Never Sleeps, and his latest book, this one, One Small Step. Pastor Matthew Barnett, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Matthew, I have been to the Dream Center. I remember touring with you. It's been a few years ago. I got to tell you, I was blown away by what I saw. Never seen anything like it. There's nothing like this on planet Earth. You started with a simple vision that you were going to reach out and go out there for the people that nobody else wanted. Where did that vision come from anyway? Well, my dad received a building in downtown L.A. Uh, for someone to come over and take over the church. And um, an inner city church that had gone through some hard times was getting ready to be sold and the Assemblies of God just wanted somebody to take it over. And so my dad got in a car and he took a bunch of pastors and wanted to see if one of them wanted to take the, the church in the middle of one of the biggest gang ravaged communities in Los Angeles. Mm. When they saw the neighborhood, every single one of them said, I don't feel led of the Lord to come here. It so, was Nineveh, huh? No, exactly. <laughs> and I was sitting in the back at 20 years of age. My dad said, would you come and help me 
pastor this church for three months until I find a real pastor. You were 20 years old. Uh, yeah, and now okay. it's 26 years later, and we're still looking for the real pastor right now. You know, we're still, maybe I, here, I don't know. Hey, Matthew, but, I think they have found him, and it's you, pal. 26 I really, years in that That's city. incredible. Yeah. When I hear numbers like 40,000 people a week, it's hard to get your arms around just the impact of the ministry that the Dream Center has. And let's talk about the fact, it's not like any other church that anyone's seen. It's not like, okay, we have Sunday services at, you know, 9, 10, and 11. This is a 24-hour-a-day operation. What do you do there? It is. It's open 24 hours a day. If you can imagine a big old hospital that sits on the Hollywood Freeway, the most strategic land in all of America, that never closes, that mm. outlasts the liquor stores, that outlasts the pimps, that outlasts everything the last 25 years, it still stands. And there's 750 people that live there every day who are coming off of drugs and alcohol free of charge, homeless families, homeless veterans, emancipated minors, human trafficking victims, all live in this building for free. And one thing the Dream Center is able to do is we give people the luxury of time. We give them time to rebuild their life, to get out of the chaos. And so we give them a year, or even two years, whatever it takes. We can do things that even the government can't do because you know, we feel called to that area. And so we've seen crime drop 73% in our neighborhood. Uh, we saw 50 people in one month sentenced to the Dream Center for one year instead of the prison system. The court sent for, them there. Yes, for 10, yeah, wow. for 10 year sentences down to one year. So in our church, we got ex-pimps, we got ex-murderers, and that's just a pastoral staff. That's not including everybody else we got going on, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's everything I never thought I would do. I was not trained in this ministry, no cross-cultural evangelism, nothing. I took a little one small step of just serving people, and little did I realize we would end up in one of the most strategic places in all of America. You know, you're doing something out there at the Dream Center that I think really represents what I read about when I read about what Jesus did. He never gave up on people. Yeah. You don't give up on people. I mean, a lot of times, even traditional churches, they'll work with somebody and they'll finally say, that, that's it, we're done. You're never done with people. Yeah. You don't give up on them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm just blown away by the fact that you're willing to to love them and love them and keep loving them even when they keep messing up. If you think about Hollywood, right buildings right next to the Hollywood sign, right underneath yeah. that. And I look at it every single day and I think about all the people who have lost their dreams when they've come to this city. And then I think about all the people who stumbled into our building, sometimes strung out, hung over, and then God starts to recreate them into everything they never thought they would be when they came into the city of Los Angeles. And if you called it the Los Angeles Church of Hope, a lot of these people would never show up because yeah. they would feel like, I, I can't go in there, I, I'll never make it. Where'd you get the name Dream Center? Well, the people in the neighborhood called it. They just started coming down to get food, and um, some of the youth were playing basketball <laughs> in our gym, and they said, hey, man, go down there. That's where your dreams will come true. And I heard that a couple times, and I said, well, I guess the people in the neighborhood are labeling the Dream Center and calling it what it is. You have also inspired other people to do Dream Centers in how many cities now? 140 cities. 140 places across the world where they're doing Dream Centers. That's right. That is incredible. You have a book out, it's called One Small Step, and, and I love the concept. It's that God sometimes will give us nudges, Yeah. little nudges. What do you mean by a nudge from God? What is that? There's so many things that God you know, speaks to our heart to do that are outside our comfort zone that we talk ourselves out of. And I think this book is really to inspire people to say yes to more things that are different from what they're capable of doing. Like for example, me coming to LA 
and starting Inner City Church. Well, that's not something that normally I would do. Yeah. But the nudge of the Holy Spirit, I stepped out and my whole life changed and the scenery of my life changed when I simply stopped justifying all the things I couldn't do and started saying yes to the things that were possible. I, th I think the title of the book, One Small Step, is what makes it so powerful. People are sometimes thinking, I can't do anything big. Yeah. I'm no hero. You know, I don't have a great big platform. And what you're telling them in the book is that just a small step. God nudges you to uh, just go up to somebody and say, hey, I just want you to know that's a beautiful smile you have. Just something simple. It's one small step, and everybody can be sensitive to that. Yeah, and it's living a life of just being intentional, getting up every single day and living your life with a head on a swivel, looking for ways to make a difference. This crowd's been doing that all day. They've been clapping mm. and cheering. And, you know, they just energize people. And I think there's so many ways that every day that we think that we have to do something big, that serving's a journey, and that one day I'll get to this great place to where I've arrived. It's constantly, it's an everyday thing of living your life dying to your flesh and living, looking for ways to be a blessing, looking for ways to serve your generation. Matthew, having seen it firsthand, I can tell you, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. God clearly has his hand on you and the Dream Center. Uh, your wonderful father, Tommy Barnett, who's just one of the greatest men of God, I think, that yeah. we've ever known in this country. I hope people get the book because it's, it's not about you, it's about them. It's about it the is. one small step that every single person in his or her life can take just to do something that may not seem big, but the impact of a small step could be extraordinary. And I hope you'll get this amazing book by a great, great leader, Matthew Barnett. Keith Bilbrey, can we learn more about the Dream Center and get involved with this amazing ministry? Or maybe even find out how to start a Dream Center in our own communities. If so, you tell us how. I would be glad to discover more about the Dream Center and how you can participate. Just visit dreamcenter.org. You can find the pastor online at matthewbarnett.com and all his books, including One Small Step, available at amazon.com and your favorite booksellers. Next, worship leader Charles Billingsley is real life battle with COVID-19. Don't go away. Huckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. Welcome back to the show. And we are so glad we have a show to welcome you back to and an audience here in our theater to enjoy it with. Hey, for over 30 years, my next guest has been an award-winning singer, songwriter, and worship leader. His latest recording, I Was Made For This, was released in April, but without the normal fanfare. Because at the time, my guest Charles Billingsley was hospitalized and struggling for his life against COVID-19. Here to tell us about the survival of all of that is a dear friend and an amazing musician and singer, Charles Billingsley. Charles. It's, when I say it's good to have you here, it's really good to have you here, brother. <laughs> it's really good to be here, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you, uh, you had quite an April, didn't you? Yeah, it was, it was by far the longest April of my life. Uh, it, uh, it really started March 26th, uh, the night before my 26th anniversary. Um, huh. I, was, um, I was just coming down with a little fever and... Um, you know, three days later, I got tested for the flu, and that was negative. And then 
Two days later, on April 1st, on April Fool's Day of all days, of course, uh, I get a call from my doctor that I've got COVID-19, and I thought he was kidding around. I thought yeah. he was joking with me. Yeah, it's not really funny, but, you no, know. Thank no, you, Doc. And, and it, it really didn't get funny after the next few weeks because, you know, after like 12 days of running 103-degree temperature, I it finally went to my lungs. And, yeah. And uh, he came to my house. He's a good friend of mine. We golf and stuff together. And he came to my house, and he checked my lungs, and he said, Woo, you've got bad double pneumonia and he said walk across the room and let me just see something so I walked across the room about 10 steps came back and my oxygen was down to 84 and and he said okay you're going to the hospital uh. and I said when he goes right now and mm. uh, that's when it got pretty serious I mean, this is all coming about the time you're supposed to release this album. It's going to be, you know, the latest project you've got. It kind of got derailed, didn't it? Yeah, I was so excited about this new project because all the songs we had written and, and worked on for months prior, it was just coming to this, you know, great release date on Good Friday. Yeah. Uh, on that Friday. And... Um, here it was the Thursday night before, and I end up in the hospital. And, and one of the cuts of the album, I was made for this. Yeah, no, <laughs> you must have thought, hey, that's not funny, God. Yeah, no, I really, it wasn't, it wasn't funny at the time. But, you know, I, I, uh, I have this tradition, and it was on that Friday. Every, every time I release a new project, and I don't know, I've done probably 24 records now. Yeah. Um, I have a tradition, the day it comes out, to listen to the project. Uh -huh. And after that, uh, you know, I probably won't listen to it again for... <laughs> five years, you know, because I've, I've lived with it for so yeah. long. And so I started, I, I was laying in the hospital bed and I started listening through these songs. And, you know, I kind of forgot it was me, really. And I just started listening to all these tunes, realizing that even though the Lord had given us these songs six months prior, how many of the lyrics were so poignant for that moment, not just in my life, but in our culture as we face this COVID crisis. And it was... Uh, we're glad you're okay, glad you're here to sing for us. Uh, in just a moment, Charles is gonna perform, but before he does, Keith Bilbrey is gonna tell you how to get his great music, which means this, you need to write all this down because you haven't heard it yet, but once you do, you're going to want to get the music of Charles Billingsley. You gotta trust me on this, I've known this guy a long time. He will light your fire. Mm -hmm. Keith, tell us about it. Well, get your copy of Charles Billingsley's I Was Made for This Everywhere Music is Sold, or just visit charlesbillingsley.com. And after the show, be sure to visit Huckabee.tv for an encore musical performance by charge. Charles Billingsley performs I Was Made for This when Huckabee returns at 60 seconds. And now, here to perform with Trey Corley in the Music City Connection with Mike on bass is Charles Billingsley. Creation seems a melody to the of all life The lakes and trees The galaxies Lift high the name of Christ The mountains soar The oceans roar But they are not enough To shout the praise Of the Savior's grace And the wonder of His 
Of the 